Amen. Tonight's distinctive is striking the balance. Striking the balance. So our hope tonight is to be able to reconcile what Christians have been fighting over for about a thousand years, right? I don't have to reconcile it. I just have to have faith in the Lord. Here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it's sweet how the Lord speaks in surround sound on Monday night with young adults. That was our portion of scripture as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it tells us, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And if there's a right way to divide the word of truth, what does that mean? There's a wrong way to divide God's word as well. Chuck Smith, he says, An important characteristic of Calvary Chapel fellowships is our desire not to divide God's people over non-essential issues. This is not to say that we do not have strong convictions. When the Bible speaks clearly, we must as well. But on other issues, we try to recognize the scriptural validity of both sides of the debate and avoid excluding or favoring those in one camp over another. The minute you set your position one way or the other, you've lost half of your congregation. And why would you want to lose half of your congregation? Our desire is to be able to minister to as broad a group of people as possible. And the minute we start taking hard-line positions on any non-foundational, controversial issues, we alienate part of God's people. In the essential doctrines of the faith, we must and we do take a firm stand. But in those non-essential areas, we accept that people have differing views and we accept these in the spirit of grace. Again, this distinctive comes way after the priority of the Word and the centrality of Jesus Christ. We believe in God's Word. We believe it is the very breath of God. He's inspired it. However, on areas of Scripture that people can sort of pick up Scripture and you can argue both ways, we try not to make a big stink about it. The essential topics of the Trinity of creation, of the sinful nature of man, of the virgin birth of the deity of Jesus Christ, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the authority of the scripture, the church being the body and the bride of Christ, and the second coming of Jesus Christ, I will gladly fight anyone over. But on these non-essential issues, it seems as if that's what Christians like to argue about the most. On young adults, we were talking about this, and then we proceeded to have a 30-minute argument. At what point does cookie dough become a cookie? Right now, don't get distracted here, but there are very, there's tons of topics that can divide Christians. Christians can argue about dancing. Can Christians dance? Some can't, some can't, right? But some argue about it. <laughs> some argue about the colors of the carpet. Some argue about the chosen movie or the new movie that just came out. Some say that if you celebrate Christmas, you're, without knowing, you're praising Saturnalia. I don't even know what that looks like or who she is, right? Easter, that you're secretly worshiping the Easter bunny. Baptisms, is it full immersion? Is it half immersion? Is it a splash? Is it a dunk? Is it the beach? Where is it at? Church government, 
Bible versions. Some Bible versions, they're from God himself. Other Bible versions are from the pit of hell. How does it make any sense? I don't know, but Christians love to argue about it. Eschatology, pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, no rapture at all. Christians love to argue about it. Even women pastors, gifts of the Holy Spirit, Calvinism versus Arminianism, Christians can go on till millennia, right? Arguing about these non-essential topics. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you're still there, in verse 14, Paul tells his son in the faith, Timothy, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. And instead of arguing what we should be, is we should be diligent to present ourselves approved, not to man, but approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. In verse 23, he tells Timothy, Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And oftentimes Christians come with just a ton of pride trying to argue a position. And it doesn't lead to edification or maturity or love, but it leads to ungodliness and strife. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 4, Paul tells Timothy to not give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. It's a great question to ask yourself. The next time you're in an argument or in a conversation with a believer, take a step back and ask, Lord, is this leading to godly edification or is this just idle talk? Is this just idle talk? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, Paul tells Timothy the type of person that likes arguing and disputing. At their heart, who are they truly? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, Paul tells Timothy that he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, and from such, argue with, from with such, prove your point, no, from with such, withdraw yourself, just get away from them, just walk away, just run away from them. Paul tells the same thing to Titus in Titus chapter 3 verse 9, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions and striving about the law for they are unprofitable and useless reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition knowing that such a person is warped and sinning being self-condemned so scripturally there's no room to be arguing back and forth about doctrine for argument's sake now if there's a young believer trying to figure things out you should teach them, but encourage them to be a Berean and to search out the Word of God for themselves. Be careful when someone is just constantly feeding you just one specific doctrine or one specific view of theology. 
Be careful with that. Someone should be able to give you both truths, not be afraid of the truth. Say, study for yourself and see what the Lord reveals to you. Two of the topics that we'll look at is the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the whole idea, the whole battle of Calvinism versus Arminianism. But first, with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we know that Paul told the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. What seems to be more important to Paul, the gift of tongues or having agape love? Agape love. That's the most important thing. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, not 4. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5. Paul says, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Then in verse 39 and 40 of chapter 14, he says, Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues, Let all things be done decently and in order. Pastor Chuck says, We do believe in the validity of the gifts of the Spirit and that these gifts can be expressed today. But we don't believe in excesses that so often accompany a freedom in the use of the gifts of the Spirit. So we avoid the controversy. If people want to speak in tongues, we encourage them to do so in a private devotional setting to assist in communicating their love, their praises, and their prayers to God. The other way that we see that scripturally is in believers' meetings or afterglow meetings, when it's not a mixed group of believers and non-believers. Paul possessing the gift of tongues in verse 18 and 19, he tells them, I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than you all. Then in chapter 14, verse 19, he says, Yet in the church... I would rather you speak five words with understanding that I may teach others also than with 10,000 words in a tongue. Many Pentecostal churches would have very short sermons according to Paul's standards, right? Five words in a known tongue compared to 10,000 words in tongue. Paul possessing the gift of tongues tells the church in Corinth that being in church is not the time for that. But if you have a believer's meeting or a time of afterglow, again, go to Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, hopefully you're still there. In verse 27, there's very simple instructions for this. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at most, each in turn, and then let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Again, the Bible is very plain. At most, three times in a church service and one after another after another. The first one, when you wait for interpretation, no one has the gift of interpretation. We close up tongues. We go and we wait for the next gifts. 
Has someone ever told you that if you do not speak in tongues, you do not have the gift of the Holy Spirit? Has anyone ever heard that statement before or been told that statement? They try to try to open up your mouth, right? I want to buy a Honda. I want to buy a Honda. I want to buy a Honda, right? And they try to sort of force it out of you. Be careful with that. In 1 Corinthians 13, right, we already read how love and agape love is way more important than the gifts of tongues or buying a Honda or anything else like that, right? He says it's all about love. In verse 1, if you don't have love, you've just become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. At the end of verse 2, he says, but have not love, I am nothing. At the end of verse 3, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Then in verse 8, love never fails. You jump down to verse 13. Now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So scripturally and biblically, tongues is not what we look for to judge if someone is filled with the Holy Spirit or to judge if someone is spiritually mature. What we should be looking for is what? Is love. That's what we should be looking for and being demonstrated is selfless love. Does this person love the Lord their God with all their soul, all their might, and all their strength? And does this person love their neighbor as themselves? Do they have the selfless love of Jesus Christ? We know that if we are abiding in Christ, we will bear much fruit. And what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? It's love. That's what Galatians chapter 5 tells us. One more scripture to turn to on this topic. It's John 15. And in John 15, Jesus is talking about abiding in him and being in him and bearing much fruit. And again, look at what Jesus tells us that should be bearing and being born out of our lives. John chapter 15 verse 8, Jesus tells us, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. We can glorify God as we bear much fruit, and we display that we are truly disciples of Jesus Christ when we bear much fruit. Then you look at verse 12, same chapter, John chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you speak in many tongues. No, that you love one another as I have loved you. In verse 14, you are my friends if you speak in tongues. No, not at all. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. One last one, verse 17. These things I command you that you love one another. So we wholeheartedly believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and that they are for today. Do we force people into that or pressure people or make them feel bad or try to have this huge division in the church? Not at all. There are some people that come to church, that serve in church, believe the gifts are for today. There are others that don't believe that the gifts are for today. Another topic that Christians often argue about and divide over is the whole idea of Calvinism versus Arminianism. God's election versus man's free will. And me personally, I don't want to be known as a Calvinist and I don't want to be known as an Arminianist. I just want to be known as a Biblicist. That's what I want to be known for. When Paul was writing scripture, he was not thinking, hey, how can I toss up a softball to John Calvin? 
That's not what Paul's thinking of as he's writing Scripture. Paul is being obedient to the Lord and to the Holy Spirit to write certain letters. We have to be careful that just because we believe something or the person that invited us to the faith or the person that first grew us in the Lord and what they believed, now we take that and that's the lens where we see all of Scripture through. Because then you're going to miss a lot of important things in Scripture and you're going to become one note when there's many notes throughout Scripture. Chuck Smith, this is a lengthy quote, but he says, Another example of maintaining a balance on debatable issues is our approach to Calvinism. This is an area that people get very emotional about. We're neither five-point Calvinists nor are we Armenian. We do believe in the security of the believer. We don't believe that you can lose your salvation because you lost your temper or told a lie or cut someone off in traffic or right, whatever else you may do. And that all of a sudden you need to come forward next Sunday and repent and get saved at the next altar call. We believe in the security of the believer, but we also believe in the perseverance of the saints. We don't believe you are a, that because you are a saint, you will necessarily persevere, but that you will persevere because you are a saint. Jesus told us in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And in John 15, verse 6 and 7, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done to you. Jesus himself is the one that brought up the possibility of a person not abiding in him. So we seek to take a balanced position rather than getting on one side and pressing the five points of Calvinism or one side and pointing and pushing Arminianism. When you take hard stands, you cut the church in half and it's pointless. There's no wisdom there. Today, there are many topics that will easily offend people that are completely biblical. It's 2023. Is it that difficult to offend someone, right? If you talk about sin, people will get offended. If you talk about alcohol and drunkenness, people will get offended. If you talk about marriage being between one husband and one wife, people will get offended. If you talk about sex, that it should only be in marriage, people will get offended. If you talk about gender, that you're either born a male or born a female, and that's it, period, end of sentence, in 2023, people will get offended. So why should we seek to offend and divide Christians on non-essential issues that can be defended by both sides biblically? Again, it's sad that there are not many Bible-believing and Bible-preaching and Bible-adhering churches in our nation or in our state or in our city. So as believers, I personally, I, I believe, I think biblically, it's taught that we should be looking for more and more common ground. As long as it doesn't go against Scripture, as long as it doesn't violate your conscience, you should be looking for more common ground with your brothers and sisters instead of looking for more things that divide you or make you different. We should take Jesus' stand on this. In Matthew 12, verse 48, he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I believe that should be our stance. Are there Calvinists that are doing the, the work of God? Yes, there are brothers and sisters. Are there Arminists that they are doing the work of God? Absolutely. Not everyone in our church believes the same things with the gifts, with eschatology, with predestination, election, free will, and the whole gambit of doctrines and theologies. And that's okay. Christians ought to be the most diverse, unified group of people in our world today. The world preaches a lie of diversity, right? Uh, a lie of what love is. Love is love as long as you believe what I tell you to believe in the world. The moment you have a differing opinion, the moment you don't agree with me, right, you're just cut off and that's it. But as believers, there's going to be differences. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, it tells us that there's diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. We're all meant to look a little bit differently. Not for our own agenda or our own gain, but to profit one another. To profit the church at large. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, it tells us, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. That's what we should have in the body of Christ. Not looking to divide, oh, you like dancing, I don't like dancing, we can't be brothers anymore, right? You believe in this, you believe it, you watch The Chosen, oh my goodness, you don't like The Chosen, oh my goodness, right? Whatever the case may be. Stop looking to divide over non-essential issues. You're doing the enemy's work. The devil's saying, hey, great job. I, I can leave these guys alone, right? They're fighting over something that's non-essential instead of going and preaching the gospel or ministering to their families. Let them keep fighting in circles. Heaven is not going to be divided into sections according to non-essential doctrinal beliefs. When you get to heaven, God's not going to say, oh, you're a Calvinist. You've been predestined to be in this section right here. Hey, you're an Armenianist. Hey, you could choose. You pick whatever you want to be in heaven. Hey, you Baptist, you could go to the quiet corner back there. You Pentecostal guys, come up front where it's nice and loud, where you like it. That's not what heaven's going to be like. It's tribes and tongues and nationalities and all sorts of people all joined together only because he's our king and our Lord and he's died for us and we love him. That, that, that's what's essential. Chuck Smith, he says, there are people who are always trying to pigeonhole Calvary Chapel. Do you believe in eternal security? I say, yes, of course I believe in eternal security. As long as I abide in Jesus Christ, I am eternally secure. Now dispute that. If you don't abide in Christ, are you secure? Can anyone have eternal security outside of Jesus Christ? There's no security outside of Christ. But I believe as long as I abide in him, he's going to keep me from falling. He's going to present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And no man can pluck me out of his hand. I believe that and I experience God's security. 
That's why I don't take a dogmatic position on this. Because I believe that scripture teaches both the sovereignty of God and man's free will and man's responsibility. If you take either of these positions to an extreme, you are denying the other. And then you've got a real problem because scriptures teach both. But then you may ask, how can I reconcile both of them? How can I reconcile God's predestination, God's election, and all of God's power and might, and man's free will, and man's choice in the matter? How can I reconcile them both? You don't have to. We're not commanded to reconcile these things. All we're commanded to do is to believe and have faith in Christ. Chuck says, when I come across a person living in fornication or in adultery or walking after the flesh, being in sin over and over and over again, and that person says, don't worry about me. I I went to a Billy Graham crusade. I prayed the sinner's prayer one time, and yet that person is a drunkard and a fornicator, but he says, once saved, always saved. Don't worry about me. Chuck says, believe me, I'm going to rattle that guy's cage the best that I can. I'm going to take him to Galatians 5 where the Bible talks about the works of the flesh and that those that do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That those who are going after sinful natures will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yet on the other hand, if I'm speaking to a saint with an oversensitive conscience, who every time that they mess up, every time they do something wrong, they feel as if they've lost their salvation, I'm going to take them to the scriptures that give us the assurance of God's love. I'm going to remind them and show them how Christ is holding them and no man can take them out of the Father's hand. I'm going to take them to the passages of scripture that give them assurance. So the position I take on the issue all depends on the condition of the person that I'm talking to. Again, it's dangerous when we sort of pigeonhole scripture to only mean one thing. When you say once saved, always saved, and you have a person that they prayed a prayer, but now they're living like hell, how do you deal with them? How do you deal with the Bob Coys or Ravi Zacharias's? And the list goes on and on and on and on. These people that did incredible things for God, and yet towards the end of their life, they completely flaked out and denied God. It doesn't fit in a specific pigeonhole. That's why we should just focus on abiding on Christ and just always knowing and sensing our need for him. The moment we become big in our own eyes, the moment we think we could just do this on our own and God's grace is just going to cover everything and anything, we are in dangerous territory. That's why I believe 2 Timothy 3.16. Let's turn there. 2 Timothy 3.16 One of those famous 316s in Scripture. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Paul tells Timothy all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need all of Scripture. 
We need to believe in all scripture, not just the scriptures that push our agenda or our theology or the doctrines that we believe in. A great book, it's, it's a quick read, it's called One-Sided Theology, and it's written by C.H. McIntosh. C.H. McIntosh, M-A-C-K-I-N-T-O-S-H. He speaks on doctrines and theologies. He says, not one of them contains the full, entire truth of God. There are certain elements of truth in all of them, but the truth is often neutralized by the error. And even if we could find a system which contains, so far as it goes, nothing but the truth, yet if it does not contain the whole truth, its effect upon the soul is most pernicious because it leads a person to pummel himself on having the truth of God when in reality he has only laid hold of a one-sided system of man. Are we just clinging to one-sided systems of man? Or are we preaching Christ crucified and that's it? What are you preaching? Again, it's always interesting to me how many Calvinists, they're always sinking their teeth into other Christians, teaching them their theology. Go out into the world. There's a, a, a sea of lost people. People that want to go back to the Jewish roots movement. They're not going to unbelievers telling them how they need to start getting prayer tassels and they got to start going to church only on Saturday and they can't eat pork. They don't tell Cubans about that. Right? They can't eat pork or anything like that. No, instead they go to other people who are already saved, and now they try to add more onto them. We believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, and that God has placed the perfect balance of all these doctrines in Scripture. That's why it's important to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation over and over and over again. If it's your first time reading through the Bible, start in Matthew. Go from Matthew to Revelation, and then go from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament. That's why it's so dangerous when we take one doctrine or one viewpoint and overemphasize it over the others. You will quickly become unbalanced. And now you will only see the Bible through a specific lens. That can happen to many of us as human beings. When you're only focused on one area of your life, can you not quickly become out of balance? For the men here, if you're only focused on your job and nothing else, and now you begin to not pay attention to your wife and not pay attention to your children, is your life not out of balance? But now if you're constantly telling your boss, hey, I can't come into work today, I got to be with my family, is your life not quickly going to be out of balance? we got to look at all the different areas of Scripture just as we need to look at all the areas of our life. Chuck Smith says, as you begin to minister, as you go through the word, you will come across those scriptures that speak of the sovereignty of God. And when you do, teach it. And when you come across those scriptures that teach about the responsibility of man, then teach that. In this way, you can be sure that the people are getting a well-balanced spiritual diet. That's why Psalm 19 verse 7 tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect. God's word is perfect. We don't have to add to it. We are not to subtract from it. We're not to only look at one portion of it or raise these verses, that these verses are more important than these verses. No, all of God's word is perfect and inspired by him, the very breath of God. Charles Spurgeon says the system of truth is not one straight line, 
but two straight lines. And no man will ever get a right view of the gospel until he knows how to look at those two lines at once. I'm taught in one book to believe that what I sow, I shall reap. I'm taught in another place that it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. These two truths, I do not believe, can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil, but they shall be one in eternity. These are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them the farthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God where all truth does spring out. Just like a railroad track, there are two truths that go parallel one to another, and when you mix the two, right, bad things happen. When you pull one out of the way, bad things happen. There are two truths that go in parallel, one right next to the other. And throughout history, God has used men from all different ends of the spectrum in theology and in doctrine and in denominations. Oftentimes, they would even be friends with opposing views and doctrine. John Wesley and George Whitfield, they were friends, but they believed opposing views in doctrine. Martin Luther had a dear friend named Philip Melanchthon, and he believed opposite of Martin Luther. And yet they could not deny the fruit that God gave to their opposing friend's ministry, so they had to just be friends and love one another and be okay with that. Chuck Smith says the very fact that, there's an arg- that it's an argumentative issue demonstrates that there's two sides. If there was ever a clear definitive teaching, then there'd be no argument. But we have scriptures that teach both sides. Let's go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, you guys are students of the Bible. Who are the two main characters in John chapter 3? You got Jesus, and who's the other guy? Nicodemus, right? It's Nick at night. You got Jesus, and you got Nicodemus. Jesus is here sharing the gospel with an unbeliever. He's a Pharisee, but he's not a believer yet. And then he tells him in John 3 verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus himself is sharing the gospel with a theologian, and he does not tell him, hey, you have been predestined to believe. He tells him, hey, whosoever believes in him, they're not going to perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him, they're not going to perish, but they're going to have everlasting life. In Revelation 22, verse 17, it tells us that the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears, come, and let him who thirsts, come, whoever desires, 
Let him take the water of life freely. We, we have scriptures like this. But then we also have scriptures like Joshua 24 verse 15. How Joshua tells us to choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. In 1 Corinthians 18 verse 21. Elijah speaking to a bunch of unbelievers. He tells them how long will you falter between two opinions. If the Lord is God follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And yet Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Does any of this make sense, right? Hey, you got to choose, you got to choose. Then Jesus tells his disciples, hey, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Again, there's two sides of election and our own responsibility and choosing. And if we make a hard position on one and not the other, you're going to divide believers for no reason. When once again, there's not many Bible-based, Bible-teaching, Bible-believing, Bible-acting churches today. So why would we divide and make it even weaker? This is what, where I encourage you, I encourage us to have the faith of a child and simply enjoy the mysteries of your God and Father. And enjoy Him. We're not called to understand how all doctrine can coexist. We are called to live by faith. The just shall live by faith. You don't fully understand God? Awesome. Neither do I. Right? Husbands here. Do you fully understand your wife? Can you love her? Can you respect her? Can you spend the rest of your life protecting her? Absolutely. Right? Wives, do you fully understand your husbands? No, not at all. Yet we can spend the rest of our lives loving one another in a selfless way. That's why Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9 tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's why Job, trying to fight with God, God all of a sudden says, All right, Job, you want to be a man? Be a man. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I told the water to stop here and the land to begin here? Who in the world are we to think that we're going to have a perfect belief system and doctrine and fit all of God into one nice and clean box? Once you get there, you're in a dangerous place as a believer. Romans 11 verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become His counselor? Who has first given to Him and it should be repaid to Him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. It'd be a boring faith if we could perfectly understand and comprehend God. He, he would no longer be God if we could completely understand him and completely write down exactly who he is. C.H. McIntosh, he says, He, blessed be his name, has not confined himself within the narrow limits of any school of doctrine, high, low, or moderate. He has revealed himself. He has told out the deep and precious secrets of his heart. He has unfolded his eternal counsels 
as to the church, as to Israel, as to the Gentiles, and the wide creation. Men might as well attempt to confine the ocean in buckets of their own formation as to confine the vast range of divine revelation within the feeble enclosures of human systems of doctrine. It cannot be done, and it ought not to be attempted. Better far to set aside the systems of theology and the schools of divinity and come like a little child to the eternal fountain of holy scriptures and their drink in the living teachings of God's spirit. Nothing is more damaging to the truth of God, more withering to the soul, or more subversive of all spiritual growth and progress than mere theology, high or low, Calvinistic or Armenian. It's dangerous when we just cling to one doctrine and it becomes our identity. I love Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus says, I thank you, my Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and you've revealed them to babes. Who are you? Are you just that baby, Lord? I don't understand this. I'm way above my pay grade. I don't know what's what. I don't know all these big words, right? But I'm just, I'm just here for the ride. I'm just happy that you saved me. You didn't kill me. You didn't destroy me. You forgave me my sins, and I haven't received what I deserve. So from here on out, I'm living for you with all of my might, all of my soul, all of my spirit. Who are you? C.H. McIntosh, he says, instead of endeavoring to reconcile apparent discrepancies, let us bow at the master's feet and justify him in all, he say, in all his sayings. Thus shall we reap a harvest of blessing and grow in the knowledge of God and in his word as a whole. Let's finally turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. Worship team, you guys can get ready. Hebrews 11, verse 1 through 3, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Again, it takes faith to believe in God and to follow him and to continue to abide in him over and over and over again. Mike Foshi said, God has to be beyond us in the end. Otherwise, we would lose all of our awe, our wonder, and our worship of him. There's going to be places in life where we're going to say, I don't know God, but I will believe in you. Family, there are going to be seasons in life where things don't make sense. Many times in life, you're going to come to difficulties. You're going to come to situations where it does not make sense. And if your whole relationship with God, if all of it has to make perfect and clear sense, your whole life's going to be shaken when you come to those seasons in life. Remember this, at the end of life, 
everyone in hell will only have themselves to blame. And at the end of life, everyone in heaven will only have God to thank. So worship team, you guys can come up. Let's pray and close. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that, Lord, we can't understand it all. But, Lord, thank you for the parts that we can understand, Lord. And, Lord, forgive us for understanding so much and yet being disobedient to it, Lord. Help us to just be obedient to the parts that we do understand at the very least, Lord. Help us to be obedient to you, Lord, to love you with everything we've got, Lord, and to love our neighbor as ourself, Lord. Lord, help us. Teach us your word, Lord. Teach us your ways, God. And, Lord, help us to let go of our pride, Lord, of just trying to prove our position, just trying to prove that we know more than the person next to us. God, help us to have that love that covers a multitude of sins, a multitude of differences, and just the diversity within the body of Christ, Lord. Help us to have your eyes, Jesus, to love others and care for others and live for others as well, God. So, Lord, we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So, hey, let's all stand.